Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. And welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So in this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking to Georgina Craig. Georgina is the National Director of the Experience-Led Care Programme. And since 2009, Georgina has been passionate and an advocate for designing services and training which place patients at the heart of the care that they receive and making sure that the patient voice is heard. If you are interested in learning more about group consultations, this is the episode for you. Personally, I've been part of some group consultations. My youngest daughter, who's got type 1 diabetes, we did a group consultation with other families. In the moment, I didn't particularly love it. But months down the line, the impact of that consultation has been really helpful because now we're remembering some of the experiences and advice of the other families in the group. So there is a lesson there, you know, like sometimes you don't experience the benefit in the moment, but in the end, it was really, really helpful. And I've also been involved in setting up some group consultations when I worked with Cranbrook PCN and that was amazing. So I've been on it both sides and I'm a fan. I think it's really, really helpful to hear other people's experiences And in relation to a general practice or a primary care network setting up group consultation, it's great for access, it's great for capacity. You can have one clinician and one coordinator supporting multiple patients at the same time. So I definitely think it's worth you checking out. Enjoy. Hey Georgina, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. So you are part of the best practice lineup. And I thought looking at your experience, and we've just been talking before we press record, and actually we met at best practice the year before. So it's a small world. Would you be able to share with our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do today? So I set up the experience-led care program in 2009. The idea was that we wanted to look at how to spread and embed person-centered care. And if you think about where we were in 2009, that was pre-DARSI and the new definition of quality, which included patient experience. And I was thinking to myself, why does the NHS not understand the lives of the people that it supports? If we were a toothpaste manufacturer rather than a health service, we'd be able to say when people clean their teeth, how often, 
but the NHS, they don't really understand what it's like to live with diabetes. And yet they're designing services for people with diabetes. So my whole concept behind what I wanted to do was to try and help and support the NHS to get better at understanding people and how things are experienced by them. And I started off doing work to try and influence the way that commissioning happens. And we invented a process called experience-led commissioning. And that was used quite extensively in primary care and in secondary care services to support the redesign of services and also in particular thinking through how to contract for outcomes rather than for widgets and uh, numbers and what needed to happen to move that whole agenda forward. And I also, another thing that's been very key to me over all the years of my work is working in partnership with academics. So I worked with the Oxford Health Experience Research Group, which is part of the Nuffield Primary Care Trust. And they very kindly allowed me to use their data sets to inform the experience-led commissioning process so that there was a real strong evidence base behind the work that we were doing. It wasn't just a group of people said this, it was really evidence-based. And we use their work as a benchmark to help us to understand the real complexity of experience of care. And that was brilliant. And what came out of all of that work with people living with long-term conditions was that what we needed to be doing was building and giving people certain things to help them to manage their health issues that they weren't really getting. And those things included a longer time with their nurse or their doctor and the chance to ask questions and get answers to questions that were more about how they could live their life with their condition rather than the management of their condition, if that makes sense. Also, they wanted to meet other people in the same situation as them and get their advice and support. And those were really important things to people. And they kept coming up in every piece of work we did, whether it was stroke prevention, asthma management, whatever it was. So I researched it and found out that this idea, which is called shared medical appointments or group visits or group clinics or group consultations, is something that had been tested and developed in the US. And I thought that's something we need in the NHS. And I tried various different ways of getting people to adopt this way of working. And in the end, one GP practice that was already doing it, and this was moving on to about 2016 said to me, Georgina, nobody else seems to be interested. Why don't you look at doing training to support teams to introduce this? And so I said, I'll give it a go. And the first CCG we worked with was Slough CCG. We applied as part of the Prime Minister's Challenge Fund to them. And the patients in Slough asked for us to look at group clinics that's what we did. And on the back of that, it got included in the GP Forward View as one of the 10 high impact actions. What is your definition of a group consultation? Okay, so I talk about group clinics rather than group consultations. There's a bit of a reason for that. And that's because what we know is that the work that happens in group clinics tends to be more the planned review type work. 
a consultation tends to be where you're taking a medical history, symptoms, etc. So a consultation has a particular definition. So group clinic is probably a more okay. appropriate term. I've just done a big literature review on this and there are key components to a group clinic. First of all, you have a group of patients who all have a similar issue that you want to discuss with them or a thing that you're reviewing with them. There is a clinician who is going to work with the group. In some work, people describe that they need to be a prescriber for it to be a group clinic. In the UK, we don't really sign up to that. If prescribing has to happen and the clinician who's running the clinic can't do it, they just go away and talk to a prescriber and get the prescriptions generated. There is a group discussion component to the group clinic where people advance their questions that they would like to ask the clinician. And then following on from that, there is a one-to-one discussion with each individual person in front of the whole group where decisions are made for that particular individual. So if those four things are in place, we would define that as a group clinic. When it comes to delivering that, the key roles in the room, as well as the clinician, is we suggest that there should be a second person who does not need to be a clinician. And that person is described as the facilitator. And the facilitator sets up the session, welcomes the patients, consents them, gathers their questions, and then the clinician joins. And then the clinical session happens, and that's that group, and then one-to-ones. And then the clinician can, at that point, leave if they want to. And then the facilitator can work with the group to help them to think about their next steps, some actions they're going to take to manage their condition. And what is your definition of personalised care in this group clinic? It's an interesting one, isn't it? What is personalised care? Probably do a whole podcast on that. But my definition of personalised care or person-centred care, which is what I tend to think about, is there's two elements to it. Person-centred care is about making it a good experience for the clinician and for the patient. Because if we don't make care a good experience for the clinician, they can't be available to the patient. If they are feeling isolated, if they are feeling burnt out, they can't do a good job. And one of the things that we've learned about group clinics is that they improve the staff experience. And that's really important because it makes the clinician more resourceful and more available to listen and empathise and make better clinical decisions in terms of the patients that they're dealing with. From a patient's point of view, the key things are that you talk to me about what matters to me, that I get to lead the discussion. It's not all about your tick box and your biometrics that you need to check to get your cough points. It's about me and my journey that we think beyond the boundaries of clinical need. And we're thinking about my life and living with the condition and that I get a say in the discussion and I'm supported to make an informed choice about what matters to me. So one of the interesting things that we hear from clinicians who talk about, for instance, diabetes group clinics, is that in group clinics, generally speaking, the question that most patients ask about their medication is how can I stop taking it? What needs to happen so I can get off it? And that's 
is a very interesting starting point for a diabetes review and a very different starting point from most of the conversations we have with patients one-to-one. Hi everyone, this podcast is brought to you in partnership with Best Practice, where we will be interviewing some of the speakers and sponsors attending the event in Birmingham on the 11th and 12th of October. If you are already registered to attend, do let us know as we would love to meet you. And if you are still to register your place, please click on the link in the show notes. Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. So when you talk about setting up group consultations and providing training, who do you sell that to or are you part of the NHS or not? We are an independent social business, so we're driven by our purpose, not by profit. We definitely put making a difference first. And we are generally funded by training hubs or ICBs. And we are commissioned to provide group clinic training programs to GP practices. So from the GP practices point of view, it's free of charge, our training, but it's paid for somewhere else in the system. We have also been commissioned by Welsh Government to help them to support the spread of outpatient models of group clinics. And we also worked in 2020 with NHS England and were commissioned by them to introduce video group clinics. With the work we did with NHS England, we have won HSJ Partnership Awards for Best Education Programme for the NHS for our face-to-face work in 2020 and for our video group clinic work in 2021. And we also got Most Effective Clinical Redesign in 2021, the HSJ Partnership Awards. So we're really proud. A HSJ award in my eyes is like an Oscar. I know it is. I I have to tell you, the night that we got those two awards, I literally felt as if it was the pinnacle of my career. (laughs) What are some of the objections you experience when promoting the benefits of group consultations with general practices? Well, it's interesting. Now, the environment is a little bit different because a lot of people have heard of the idea. So they've kind of like got a bit of a feel for it. When we first talked about this, as you can imagine, a lot of clinicians said, how on earth can you do a personalized consultation in a group setting? You know, how's that even possible or feasible? And the other thing that people talked about a lot was the concerns about confidentiality and people disclosing information outside the group. So those issues, those what I would call governance issues and risks that you have to manage with group clinics, and that's the one additional risk that you have to manage with a group clinic versus a one-to-one appointment, is that third-party disclosure, have been dealt with really robustly now in England and Wales because of the video group clinic programme that we did in both countries. So there are now signed off processes which have been approved at NHSE level. And if people follow those processes, they are fully protected against any possible repercussions. You can't control what patients do. You can only manage these risks. But actually, there's a contracting process that takes place in a group clinic where it's in my interest not to share your details and it's in your interest not to share mine. So actually, we have to also recognise that patients are responsible and grown up and are very unlikely really to disclose information about other people outside of the group. 
So before we started talking, you said, I've never actually worked in the NHS and that you've been a bit of an outsider. Talk to me a little bit more about that. I worked in Germany for a pharmaceutical company before I came to the UK because my degree is in German and business studies. And then they transferred me over to the UK. I worked as a medical rep there. And I moved on to another pharmaceutical company and they gave me the job of a sort of hit squad of us. We were kind of all pulled out of different parts of the business to look at new customers and the opportunities. And I was given community pharmacy and medical education as two things to focus on. And I've realized that over the course of my career, several times I've been given a blank piece of paper and had to invent something. So somebody must have seen something in me early in my career that made them realize that that wasn't going to be too overwhelming for me. Although I'm not going to lie, it was quite overwhelming to have this given to me. So I looked at community pharmacy and obviously looking at it through a pharmaceutical company lens and thought about medication compliance. And I realized they were a group of people who were really underestimated in terms of what they did. And I spent about two years working for the pharmaceutical company, making contacts and getting an understanding and making recommendations about how we could work with community pharmacy. But it was almost a bit too early. It was like what they needed really was somebody to work with them to help them develop their role within primary care. And then a job came up at what was then called the National Pharmaceutical Association to lead a team of people to do just that. And I thought, that's something I could do, having spent two years researching the subject. So I applied for the job. So I got the job, much to the consternation of a lot of the people within that team who were pharmacists. And they were like, how can a non-pharmacist lead something like this? And I am really proud of the work that we did in that team because we were like the guerrilla stealth warriors of community pharmacy development. We used to work with health authorities as it was then. We didn't take any credit for the work that we did, but through that team, we developed the idea of the minor ailment schemes, which we were the ones to pioneer that, which is known as Pharmacy First now and is pretty well established and just got a big boost in the latest reforms. We introduced the idea of medication management schemes. We also did the first pilots of emergency hormonal contraception being available through pharmacy. We put together a submission to the Crown Review, which was the review around prescribing and recommended pharmacists to take on a primary prescribing role, but also what later became supplementary prescribing. We described a shared care model and that was the supplementary prescribing model as it came out. So we did loads of really good work, but we were never in the system. We were on the outside supporting, facilitating, and then letting other people take the credit for it. And I believe that is the best way to get change to happen. That's my learning from my work. I think there was some famous person who said, you can achieve anything as long as you don't want to take credit for it. I'm not in the slightest bit interested in being in the limelight. You say that, but you've won two, three HSJ awards. I don't enter those for personal glory. 
Most of the awards that I've won, the lead person in the award is the client that I'm working with. So I've also helped quite a lot of my clients win awards as well for the work that they've done on experience-led commissioning, group clinics and stuff. As it's an HSJ partnership award, it's an award that specifically celebrates, if you like, partnership between the private sector and the NHS. So obviously that means that we are more high profile in that awards than we would otherwise be. I think my view is that if you've done something, it's okay to say, I did a good job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't don't think it's, oh, look at me. I think I'm so amazing. You are a business owner. And if people don't know what you do, and you don't know the impact that you have created, because you don't want to be perceived to be like, look at me, you can't have been in business for over 14 years stealth and under the carpet (laughs) when I say that is more my values sometimes you have to let other people take the credit for stuff even though you know that that probably would never have happened without you and it's because my bigger motivation is getting that person-centered care embedded So, of course, I'm happy to celebrate what I've achieved. But my motivation in that sense is very internal. I'm not driven by external praise. I'm actually like inside, have I done a good job? Can I live with myself? That's what matters to me. It was the best night of my career to win two (laughs) HSJ awards. I am human. You know, I'm not some kind of a saint or anything. But by the same token, it was like, great. What's next? What are we going to do next to get this going? What is next? I have got some fun ideas of things I'd like to do maybe in my 60s, which don't necessarily involve working. Although that changes on a daily basis, if I'm honest. Bearing in mind that I basically started to introduce group clinics in 2015 and the average time span for any kind of innovation to be adopted in the NHS is 10 years, if you're lucky. So 2025, I would like to see group clinics mainstream. I want it to be something that is available across the board for the management of chronic disease in primary care. For me, that would be me having set out to do something and really having achieved it that would be amazing I'm working with NHS England to help bring it more into the mainstream I've got contacts and working across most of the ICBs in the country I think there's about five or six where I'm not actively having some kind of conversation about how we spread group clinics and I want to know that people are looking to spread it and how they're going to do that that's where my expertise lies I mean obviously I run a learning program which is the best education program for the NHS two years in a row and that is a means to an end to get practices up and running But you need to create the right conditions at strategic level for this to take off. And that has to be my focus right now. Get people thinking about how this can help them with workforce development, access, improving quality of care, digital maturity, reducing health inequalities, because there's evidence around all of these things even retention of staff. There's evidence that group clinics have a positive impact on retention of staff. So it ticks so many boxes. It deals with so many of the issues that the NHS is facing right now with extended waiting times. It's actually a crime that it's not much higher up the agenda. My time is spent thinking about that. That's where I am. 
The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you proudly in partnership with 10,000 donors and their Gob for Good campaign. Gob for Good is all about getting as many people as possible to join the stem cell registry. Only 3% of the UK are registered to be stem cell donors and only 0.4% of the global population. If you or a loved one have the devastating news that you have been diagnosed with a blood cancer, the chances of you finding your blood stem cell match is significantly reduced if you have a minority ethnic heritage. It is really, really simple. All you need to do is click into the show notes or visit the Gob for Good website at gobforgood.com and get yourself signed up to the registry. You could one day receive that life-saving call or one day you may need that life-saving call. Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. So you went to best practice last year, you're going this year, like what keeps you going back? It is wonderful to be in a room with people, isn't it, at the conference and just connect with people. And I always bump into loads of people and it's like, oh, my God, I haven't seen you for ages. So there's that networking element. But actually, I have had some really good contacts from best practice as well. So there's a GP that I met there in October last year. I've been working with her ever since to try and get group clinics up and running in her ICB. And she galvanized 13 PCNs who all wanted to come on board and get training and that kind of thing on the back of it. We're doing four sessions at Best Practice this year. That's the most we've ever done. We're doing a live menopause group session for NHS staff so they can experience the group clinic for themselves, but also get some help on thinking through their menopause. We're doing one on the value of menopause group clinics with the same GP aimed at a GP audience or a nurse audience. We're doing a plenary session and it's a discussion about the value of group clinics in the current environment. And then we also had a lot of success doing one focused on respiratory models of group clinics. So that's part of the respiratory work stream at Best Practice. So I feel that Best Practice is the best fit conference for group clinics. And so I'm putting hopefully a good partner for Closer Still and helping them to make sure they have really engaging sessions around group clinics. It's a busy time. I'm going to be involved in all of them. It's a good opportunity to really get the message out there. We also do free webinars, lunch and learn webinars. The next one, which is going to be in October, is around how group care can be used by personalised care practitioners. So health coaching groups, social prescribing, that kind of thing. I love capturing the best practice, the stories of people's success in webinars, in these sessions. I love doing really interactive sessions. You know, whenever you go to like best practice and you're sitting in the audience and you're thinking it's a 30 minute session and 25 minutes is the speaker. And then you're like, well, that leaves no time for the wisdom in the room. So we always make our sessions really interactive. Let's have a discussion about this. What are you thinking? And sometimes it's a bit of a shock to the audience because they're not expecting to be asked to participate. But I love that. I love doing those really participatory sessions. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. If people want to learn more about what you do, where is the best place to find you? You can find our website, which is www.elcworks.co.uk. 
We've got masses of free resources on there. There's loads of case studies, both written and video, of people talking about their running group clinics, the group clinic models they've done, how they've done them. You can sign up for our webinars there. You can get in touch with me. My mobile number's there. You can give me a call. You can send me an email and then we can help you to move forward with group clinics. Thank you so much. so much for joining us. If you like what you hear, I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five-star review. I know many of you give us a shout out on social media, which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast. So please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram and on LinkedIn. Just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, please do. You get to hear more insights, more confessions, some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.